Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for His Spirit to give us understanding of the Word of life. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that in Your kind provision for us, You've given us Your Word written down. You've given us the, the means uh, and the command to study it. And we pray that you would bless us accordingly. We pray that you would grant to, to your people ears to hear and eyes to see. We pray for those among us this morning who do not yet know Christ, who have not bowed the knee to his authority in, in life in general and in particular ways that we'll see today. We pray for your mercy upon us. We pray for your mercy to save those who are yet dead in sin and transgression. And we pray that today would be the day of life, the day of justification for those who have not yet believed, and a day of sanctification for those who are persevering in Christ. We ask this for his namesake. Amen. You take your seat and turn with me to two places. You might have your, your fingers kind of split here. Uh, our text this morning is going to be Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 and 32. We're going to spend a, a couple moments in Romans 1 first. As I mentioned last, wa- last week, I'm doing something that is very, very unusual for me. I'm breaking in, in, in the midst of a study. We're almost in the, in the end of our study through Paul's letter to the Colossian church. But I'm breaking that study to address a social slash political issue. And I almost never do that. I think I've only done that twice in almost 12 years now. But I think this is particularly important. As of January the 8th, just last week, our brothers and sisters in Canada are now officially and formally under attack by their own law, their own government, but far more crucially, the full truth of God's word is under attack. And now formally, it is illegal in Canada Canada to teach what the Bible says about human sexuality. It's illegal. It's a crime. Pastors can be placed in jail for simply saying what the Bible says about human sexuality, about what the Bible says about the creation of man as male and female. God created them. And this grieves me. Now, I've gathered with true saints and worshipped in three different provinces in Canada. I've had the, the privilege of preaching in two different provinces in Canada. And I've, I've seen the genuine faith and the love of, of the Canadian people for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we share that common faith. And when, when one is under attack, we are all under attack. But not only that, the seeds of those very, the, the, the root issues and those laws are very much growing in the soil of city councils and municipalities and state governments and even at the federal level in our own nation. So it is a folly for us to close our eyes, to cover our ears, and pretend that problem is not happening near to us. We read a few weeks ago in Colossians 4 how Paul asked specifically for prayer for clarity in the preaching of God's word. And I ask that you pray for me this morning and for all pastors who are joining with their Canadian brothers in solidarity. What's happening in response to the the January 8th is the drop-dead date. That's the into-effect date for this law. You can look it up. It's called C4, the letter C4. And and what it does is it bans this, this any biblical teaching on human sexuality. It bans teaching someone that if you are a homosexual, that you ought to repent of that and turn to Christ. If, if it is a, a young boy who's confused and saying, well, I think I'm a girl, you're banned. It's illegal to say, no, you're not a boy. You're, you're a, a boy because God made you a boy. Or you're a girl because God made you a girl. That is a crime now in Canada. So in response to that, pastors across Canada have agreed, let's, let's pick January the 16th to proclaim together with one voice the biblical doctrine of sexuality. And they have requested for pastors in the United States to join with them. And I'm I'm joining in that today. In the scriptures, in the Old Testament, the sons of Issachar were particularly pointed out for being able to discern the times. It It is my view 
that this, these aberrations that we are seeing, and now they're becoming codified, they're becoming part of law, these aberrations that we're seeing really have nothing to do with sex. It's really not a physical reality. It has to do with authority. It has to do with authority. The question that looms over all of this is, who's in charge here? Who's running this show? And the hubris, the pride, the arrogance of men to stick their chests out, to puff their chests out, to shake their fists at God and say, we are in charge, must be addressed. And we have to speak with a clarity on this issue. So I am convinced that this whole LGBTQ agenda and whatever other pluses and letters that might be associated with that, I didn't check this morning what the latest version is, but all of its attendant success in the legal system, all the pub, all its um, pull and force in the public square, again, has nothing to do, really, with sex. This is a power play. It is an effect of something far more fundamental, far more deadly, something with far greater eternal consequences for themselves, but also for those who approve of what they do. The issue, again, is authority. God alone has the authority to create, to order, and to govern human sexuality. And every departure from God's created order is a direct and personal attack on his exclusive authority. That's the thesis. That's that's the main idea today. If you walk away with nothing else, walk away with that. God alone has the authority to create, to order, and to govern human sexuality. And any departure from that is not, is not merely a legal offense. It's a personal offense against the holy God. So, to deal with this issue of, of Christ's supreme authority, we're going to go to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus asserts his exclusive authority over human sexuality. But before I do that, before I expound that text, I want to go to Romans 1, and I want to demonstrate to you, I'm not going to expound that text, I'm not even going to read all of it, but I do want to show you that my thesis is sound. In Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, we're confronted with this statement. This is a fearful statement, saints. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. That ought to stop us in our tracks. The wrath of an eternal holy, omnipotent God is revealed from heaven, and every man ought to tremble. Why? Why is God's wrath revealed from heaven? Well, Paul answers that. He says he's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. See, we sometimes get this backwards, and I've been guilty of this myself. We get cause and effect confused, and we think things like, Surely God will judge our nation because of the sin of homosexuality or because of the, the sexual aberrations that all are all around us. And we have that precisely 180 degrees backwards. That is the judgment. That's the effect, not the cause. Now look what, I, look what Paul says. And again, I'm not going to read all of it. I want to point out to you some, some things. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts hearts were darkened. Verse 24, therefore. See, that's a cause and effect kind of a statement, right? The cause was they did not honor God as God. Therefore, here's the effect. God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. God said, you want your sin? Here's the worst thing I can do to you. You can have it. You can have it. I will withdraw my hand of restraining grace. 
and you can have the full effect of what you want. Then in verse 23, why? Why did God do this? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Do you see this is an authority issue? This this is a refusal to acknowledge God as God, as creator, as Lord and judge of all the earth, and therefore God has handed them over. Now, in case we're still in doubt, verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Women doing what they ought not to do, men doing what they ought not to do. And then over again in verse 28, and since, again, that's another purpose statement, or cause and effect statement, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. You ever look around our culture and go, that doesn't make any sense. This is insane. And I mean that in both the physical but also in the spiritual way. This is insane, and you're right. But it ought to be expected. This is what happens. Think about Nebuchadnezzar. He asserted himself and essentially said, like Satan, I will be like the most high God. He, he stood out, he surveyed his kingdom, and said, oh, what a great work I have done. And for seven periods of time, God sent him out with his mind lost to wander as a beast in the field. That's what happens when God removes Every ordered thought you've ever had is because of God's grace. Anytime you're able to to string together a coherent sentence, a coherent thought, and make sense of the world, it is only because of God's grace. And God God doesn't owe you that. And he can remove it. That's what he's doing. Then verse 32, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So here's the proper cause and effect. It is not because of these sexual aberrations that God is going to judge the world. It's because they did not honor God as God. They thought man has sought to be his own authority. He has sought to be autonomous, which means autonomous, a law to yourself. When man has said, I am my own law, God said, okay, have at it. That's the judgment. And what we are witnessing all around us is that judgment. But what's the remedy? Well, number one, we need to understand the nature of God's authority in this area. But then number two, we need to repent. We need to seek the mercy of God. So now turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. It's a long introduction, but it's important to set the parameters of this discussion. This is not, as I said, about sex per se. That's just the symptom. That's not the real disease. The real disease is a refusal to honor God's just and right authority here. Now, to further set the table, in the Sermon on the Mount, we're popping down right in the middle, which is always kind of a dangerous thing. But here, we, the, the, the sermon begins, chapters 5, 6, and 7 constitute the Sermon on the Mount. It begins with the Beatitudes, these statements of, of blessings. Then Jesus says, in the section where we find our text today, verses 27 to 32, Jesus gives six different statements. Commentaries call them, commentators call them antitheses. And Jesus repeats this phrase six times. You have heard that it was said but I say to you. Now, two things are happening here. Number one, the the Pharisees, the teachers, the scribes, the teachers of the law in Israel had had twisted the word of God to say things that it never really, God never intended it to say. So in that sense, Jesus is saying, you've heard them say this, but I say to you. But there's another thing he's doing. There, There are times when they teach accurately what the word of God says, but they don't go far enough. I think it was Spurgeon that said the Old Testament is like going into a large banquet hall that's dimly lit. And the New Testament, the lights come on. You get to see all the furnishings are still there. Nothing's changed, but now you get to see it clearly. So Jesus says, I am the true lawgiver. I am the one who says to you, this is what the law really meant. So for example, 
when he says, you've heard that it was said, do not commit murder. Do not murder. Well, that's, that, is what the Ten Command, that is what the Sixth Commandment says, right? But he says, but I say to you, if you have anger in your heart against your brother, you are also guilty of the same sin. He's not saying it's the same degree, but it's the same sin as murder. So he's going deeper. He's turning the lights on to show this is what was always there in that sixth commandment. But the men who have taught you have focused on the external. They focused on outward obedience because that's a lower bar. And Jesus is saying, I say to you, the bar is much higher than you can imagine. That's why he said, unless your righteousness exceeds the, the, the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never see the kingdom of God. That's why he could say that. So these, with these six antitheses, we learn three major things. And we'll need all three of these to understand what he says about human sexuality. Number one, Jesus is the true and exclusively authoritative lawgiver. Jesus is the true and authoritative lawgiver. Moses was a letter carrier. He was a mailman, in a sense. He was not the author of the law. He was important in God's economy of redemption, but he was not the creator of the law. Jesus is, but I am. Secondly, Jesus is showing to us that our submission to him, our obedience to him, is not merely external, but requires obedience from the inner man. Again, it's not enough to refrain from murdering someone. You've also got to deal with the sinful heart from which those at anger flows. Thirdly, Jesus, the Jesus commands are relational and not merely legal. What do I mean by that? If, if you go out, out of here on FM 1314 and you commit a traffic violation and a police officer pulls you over, you haven't personally sinned against him. You haven't offended him. You've broken the law, but you haven't offended him ordinarily. That's not the case when you sin against God. It's a personal offense. It is a violation against his person, against his character. So Jesus' commands are not merely legal, they are also relational. So have those three things in mind as we jump into the text. Now we're up to an even longer introduction, aren't we? Now, hear the word of God, beginning in verse 27 of Matthew chapter 5. And here, train your ears, or tune your ears to hear, the central issue here is authority not sexuality. You have heard, and and of those six antitheses, two are in this one section. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Well, that's exactly what the seventh commandment says, right? But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members, we could add here, and go to heaven, than that your whole body be thrown to hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members and that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife Let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's notice, first of all, here what's happening. Let's notice the authority of Jesus Christ to define human sexuality the exclusive authority of Jesus Christ to define the boundaries and the affirmative duties of human sexuality. His authority reveals at at least three things here. Number one, Jesus has the authority to diagnose an an underlying root cause of sin. Do you notice this? He says, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. They're talking about, the Pharisees taught this in such a way that you have to avoid the physical act. Well, as Jesus would say to them in other areas, he said, it's not enough just to love those who love you. I mean, even the pagans in the marketplace do that. We could apply the same kind of reasoning here. I mean, most pagans in the marketplace 
can, can go their whole lives and avoid the physical act of adultery. Most do. Not all, but most do. That's not something that requires any kind of supernatural intervention. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, Jesus defines, where's the first location of sin? It's not in a bed. It's right here between the ears. That's where the first movement of sin takes place. But the other thing that Jesus, so Jesus, and I'll say more about this, but he diagnoses the underlying cause, the underlying place of sin. He has the authority to do, the exclusive authority to do that. Secondly, he is the only one who defines marriage as the only lawful arena of human sexuality. We see this down in verses 31 and 32, where he deals with the issue of, of divorce. He's not really talking about divorce per se here. What he's saying is, no one gets to define marriage and the terms of marriage except me. Men don't have the authority to do that. So if a man decides, well, I'm just going to give my wife a certificate of divorce, this is the loophole, and I can go on and be a serial adulterer. I can decide I'm not happy with this wife. I'll divorce her, give her that certificate of divorce. I'll take a new wife, and then I'll repeat the process. What is that if nothing? it's nothing but serial adultery? sanctioned by law. Jesus says, that doesn't work because I'm the only one who gets to define the terms of marriage. I get to define the parties of marriage, a husband and a wife, and the terms of marriage. Thirdly, he defines also the boundaries of human sexuality. The boundary of human sexuality is the context of marriage and marriage alone. But he also defines affirmative duties. Let's kind of look at these things in order. First, adultery. Under the authority of Jesus Christ, the exclusive lawgiver, there is something that, it, that, in, that it, there's sin that takes place prior to and beyond the physical act of adultery. It involves sin at the heart level. And Jesus alone has the authority to diagnose that to pierce through the sword of his word that pierces through even to the division of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And to say, it is not first a physical act. It is born in a wicked heart that desires to sin against God's created order. That's where adultery begins. Jesus has the authority to diagnose that. At best... All we can do with one another is look at an outward action. Jesus can look into the heart and say, this is why this happened. And in the second section, I'll say more about what he means by lustful intent, but understand that Jesus is saying that before a physical act of adultery has taken place, guilt is already present in the heart. It is already present. And notice that Jesus makes the exclusive claim to the authority to make that determination. Secondly, because Jesus is the only lawgiver, he is the one who defines marriage as the only lawful arena of human sexuality. By speaking of adultery, he immediately places this in the context of marriage. Now, you can write in your notes to turn over to Matthew 19. I'm not going to read that. That's where Jesus expands on his teaching about uh, divorce. He's not here making an argument for or against the lawfulness of divorce. I do believe divorce is lawful in the case of sexual immorality and in the case of abandonment, but that's beyond the scope of what he's teaching here. He confirms that marriage is the lawful domain of human sexuality. That's his point. And some key features is in terms of how he responds to this. He asserts that the answer is rooted in the created order, that God made man, male and female, and God has caused them to be joined together. Marriage is established by the authority of God alone. Marriage is defined by that authority alone. Man does not possess the authority to upend or modify or change the, the parties or the terms of marriage. Man doesn't get to do that. Man doesn't get to say, for example, that, that another combination of people can, can lawfully marry. God says one male and one female. 
he doesn't, we, get, we don't get to change that to say, well, one who changed himself to a male and a female, or one male and two females, or two females, or any other combination of things. We don't have that authority. Individually, collectively, even as a society, we don't have that authority. Jesus alone has the authority to define affirmative duties with regard to human sexuality. Look what he says when, when he says in response to this. If your right eye, which is ordinarily the dominant eye, if your right hand caused you to sin, he uses hyperbole, he uses exaggeration. He's not advocating literal self-mutilation here, but he's saying this is how urgently and seriously I have the authority to command you to deal with sexual sin. If your right eye causes you to sin, you're better off to gouge it out and go into heaven with one good eye than to continue on in the sin. You're better off going into heaven with a missing right hand than going to heaven or going to hell with two good hands. Jesus has the authority to define those affirmative duties. Now, sexual sin is not only those, those acts of commission, talks about adultery, but it's also those sins of omission. The Westminster Larger Catechism is helpful here, describing some of our, our positive duties. What is required of us? The Seventh Commandment says, do not commit adultery, but there are also positive duties that go with that. Verse, or question 138 in the Westminster Larger Catechism says, what are the duties required in the Seventh Commandment? The duties required in the Seventh Commandment are chastity in body, mind, affections, words, and behavior, the preservation of that chastity in ourselves and others, watchfulness over the eyes and all the senses, temperance, keeping of chaste company, modesty and apparel, marriage by those that have not, gift, that have not the gift of continency, conjugal love and cohabitation, diligent labor in our calling, shunning all occasions of uncleanness and resisting temptations thereunto. We, we have positive duties with respect to this issue of, of human sexuality under the, the lordship of Christ. So may it not be the case that we as Christians sit back and look at the aberrations around us and say, look at how all these people are sinning against God in this way, while at the same time neglecting the positive duties that God has given to us. The same authority of Christ in this area applies to us as well as to them. So, for example, husbands and wives, are, are you both working together to cultivate this vital part of your marital union? Are, are there difficulties in your, the, the marital intimacy? You, have a, you both share a duty together to address those challenges. Do you recognize that the authority of Jesus Christ is at work both negatively and affirmatively, establishing not only the prohibitions with respect to the seventh commandment, but also the positive duties. Are you instructing your children with respect to God's authority, Christ's unique and exclusive authority over their bodies, over who, how he has made them? Are you even at, at a very young age, and it's age appropriate, of course, but are you talking to them about the fact that God has made them fearfully and wonderfully? He has made them according to his wisdom, according to his design. And are they growing up just ordinarily, naturally hearing those things? So that when the world confronts them with stuff, they can say, I know I can talk to my dad, I know I can talk to my mom, and I know I'm going to get the truth about these matters. Those are positive expressions of our recognition as parents that Christ rules this domain. See, marriage is fundamentally a public matter. You hear that expression, well, marriage is private. That's not true. That's not true. There are intimate aspects of marriage, without a doubt. But marriage itself is not a private matter. Doesn't matter who I marry, who, nobody can tell me who I can love. That's not true. Marriage is a public matter. That's why it's, 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 it's instituted with a public ceremony. It is absolutely our business with one another. If someone's marrying, if for a Christian, if someone's marrying someone who's an unbeliever, for example, or for a man to say, I want to marry another man, that's a public matter, not a private one. And what society 
what our society is doing is getting these absolutely backwards. It's taking that which ought to be public and making it private by saying, who I love is nobody else's business. And then taking those things that ought to be intimate and private and making them public. See how it's backwards? This is what Satan does. He turns things inside out. He corrupts things. And certainly our culture has gone absolutely mad with with a power play in this sexual arena. But we have to recognize that anti-authoritarianism is at the root of it. It's a worship of the sovereign self. It's a worship of self-determination in regard to sexuality. So even that young children, even very young children are given the authority are told they have the authority to decide, are you a boy or are you a girl? What blasphemy for a parent to teach their child to shake their fist at their creator and say, I will not be the boy you have made me to be. I will not be a girl as you have made me to be. And even the language gets, gets twisted. You've seen this. Even in, the, even in the Canadian law, if you read through the bill C4, it uses the language gender assigned at birth. That's a silly statement, and it's actually in the law book now. There is no gender assigned at birth. There is a sex, a biological sex, that often is revealed at birth. Their modern technology is often revealed beforehand, but it's revealed. It's not assigned as if we had that authority. We as Christians are also prone, though, to this anti-authoritarianism. We think about We think other things are sovereign over our own sexuality. We consider our own sexual desires. When we think about our own ideas or even temptations, we begin to think, I'm in charge. And we need self-consciously to remind ourselves, Christ is Lord of this, not me. Christ is sovereign here. Christ is the ruler, not me, not my desires. Friends, hear the word of Christ today. He says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And you may have heard voices say to you, hey, this is normal. It's fine. But I say to you something different. You have have heard it said, well, all men do this. But Christ has said to you. You have heard it said, well, all women are like this. But Christ has said to you. See, do you see why his authority is so important in this area? And we're tempted to think that our feelings are authoritative or that our our physical urges are authoritative. We may even think about our own negative experiences or our sinful history is authoritative, that that somehow determines things. Or that previous bad teaching is authoritative, but Christ alone is Lord of our sexuality. So that's the first consideration in in our text this morning. Jesus alone has this exclusive authority. But let's let's consider a second important component of this. Jesus also teaches the deceptive depth, the deceptive depth of sexual sin. I'm going to move pretty quickly. Sin is deceptive, and the Scriptures teach us that sexual sin is particularly deceptive. Look at verse 28. Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This phrase, lustful intent, the word that he uses, it goes deeper and and broader at the same time than than a mere, mere sexual attraction or a physical desire. It's not less than sexual desire, but it includes more than that. The word means, means to long for. In fact, many places in, in, the, in the scriptures, it's translated as desire or even coveting. And sometimes the word is translated in a good context. There are things that we desire that are good, and we desire them in a good way. So the context determines this. And here, it's clear our Lord is using this in a negative connotation. He's obviously using it in a bad way in this context. But often this is, this is assumed to be a man problem, right? Partly because Jesus uses the male as the example here, but he's not ex- speaking exclusively to men. Ladies, you, you know, you're not incapable of lust, are you? It may look different. It may be in a, in a, in a, in a 
in a different manner expressed. But it doesn't mean it's fundamentally different. So when we interpret this in such a way, and we kind of interpret it through a, a exclusively male lens and say, well, there's this visual lust, and the women can say, well, I don't really experience it that way, so I'm not guilty of that. See, it's, it's a coveting. It's a desire for something that isn't yours. So male and female both are equally prone. And again, Jesus says, seldom does adultery begin with sex. Almost never. It begins in the mind. It begins in the heart. It begins with subtle discontent. And that this, this discontent is ultimately not with our spouse or, or with the lack of a spouse. The discontent is with the wisdom and provision of God. So lust should not be understood merely in, in physical terms. Men and women, generally speaking, may experience this lust in different ways, but lust in any form is deceitful. That's his whole point. It's subtle. It's cunning. It's crafty. Because our enemy is subtle and cunning and crafty. Jesus says this legal technicality doesn't cover up the fact, this idea of divorce. And and the Pharisees could say, well, I can divorce this woman and marry another. That way, technically, I'm not creating adultery. I'm I'm not committing adultery. But Jesus says, no, this is still your lustful intent. This is, you're, you're a serial adulterer with a legal sanction. That doesn't make it right. Sin takes the wonderful design of our bodies and the good desires of our hearts and uses them against us. That's what sin does. It corrupts, it deceives. And the mind of God designed us, the mind of God that designed us to think glorious thoughts of Him as our Creator, actually turns traitor upon us. We find ourselves conspiring against our own flesh. We end up conspiring ourselves against God himself. You know, it's a nice sunny day today, but um, if the pattern holds here over the next few months, we're going to hit rainy seasons again in the Houston area. And, and you know, those, those storms are passing through, and they're, they've got the flash flood warnings, and there's always the warnings about driving into deep water. Remember those? Constant. But what always happens? You turn on the news, and there's helicopter footage of some guy standing on top of his car because the car's underwater. And they interview him, and he says, I didn't realize I was that deep. And the water rose a lot faster than I thought it would. And I got stuck. Sexual sin is like that. Sexual sin is like that. The water's deeper than we think it is. It rises faster than we think it will. And then we can't get out. So there is a uniqueness in that way because there's a deceptiveness. And that's what Jesus is warning against. Because this, this, this starts in your heart long before... You've committed a a physical act. The sinful heart is at work, and the deceptiveness of sin working in the heart. Jesus says that deception does not begin in a bed. It begins in our minds, in our hearts. It begins sometimes simply wanting to be around someone you're not married to. It begins with a thinking about and longing to be around. I wonder if that person's going to be here. We find ourselves those kind of corrupting thoughts. As I've talked to both men and women, who have been, who've found themselves caught in the cords of adultery. Not one of them ever sought that. I'm talking about Christian people. As I've counseled them over the years, it's, it's always been, I didn't realize that was going to happen. I didn't set out for that to happen. But again, it began with welcoming that affection of someone who wasn't their husband, wasn't their wife. Note the unique, unique nature of sexual sin. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul, Paul says this. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Again, the scriptures point us to the authority of King Jesus, who is the only lawgiver. And he says, it is, the sexual sin is, is unique in its ability to deceive. And it is unique in its effect upon the person. Every other, if a thief steals, it's outside of himself. The sexual sin, he's dealing with his own body, his own person. And since the Lord has said that the sexually immoral 
And sexual immorality goes far deeper than the physical. We, we must not be deceived with relationships and desires outside of marriage. We must flee from the very root of sexual immorality. And this is why, if you haven't already heard it, you, you surely will, even among Christian circles, there's this idea of, have you, you heard the term side B Christianity? There are, or the revoice conference or movement. Uh, it's, it's prominent within the, the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, which is a conservative Presbyterian confessional Christian denomination. The idea of side B promotes the idea that one can be a gay Christian as long as one is celibate. So the fact that one has somebody has disordered desires, contrary to nature, contrary to God's word, as long as they don't act upon them, it's not sinful. In fact, it's not even sinful to refer to oneself as a gay Christian. Well, isn't that an oxymoron? We are not identified by our sin. We are identified by Christ. So they err at this point by teaching that as long as the aberrant thoughts remain only as thoughts and not actions, then it's not sin. But is, does that jive with Matthew 5? If you've committed adultery in your heart, you're guilty. If you've longed for something you ought not to have. Now, when I do pre-marriage counseling, Often, part of the counsel is that you've got a young couple and, and they're attracted to each other, even sexually attracted to each other. There is, there is a point where that can become sinful lust, but the mere fact that a man and a woman are attracted to one another isn't sin. That's God's design. In fact, we ought to be concerned if the attraction isn't there. We really ought to be concerned about that. But if it's a man who says, I am attracted to other men, there is never going to be a lawful termination of that, never a lawful fulfillment of that. The young couple who's engaged in pre-marriage counseling, and they're getting ready to be married, and they're, they're saying, we're struggling with maintaining some physical boundaries, and we, we, we are eagerly looking forward to being married together. Praise the Lord for that. That has a lawful fulfillment, hopefully just ahead. Well, I'm not a fan of long engagements. That's a whole other sermon. Sexual attraction, though, with the same sex can never be lawfully fulfilled. And in case we doubt the deceptive nature of such ideas and, and that, that thoughts can be disordered in our minds and contrary to nature and yet allow them to remain and say it's not sin, consider where this inevitably goes. And this is not a fallacious, slippery slope argument. This is reality. This past week, I wish I were making this up, this past week in USA Today, that little newspaper nobody's ever heard of, right? Their national correspondent, a man named Elia Dastigar, wrote an article entitled, What the Public Keeps Getting Wrong About Pedophilia. This is where the argument inevitably goes. Listen to what he says. Pedophilia is viewed as among the most horrifying social ills, but scientists, oh, those scientists, who study the sexual disorder say it is also among the most misunderstood. When most of the public thinks of pedophilia, they assume it's synonymous with child sexual abuse, a pervasive social problem that has exploded to crisis levels online. Researchers who study pedophilia say that the term describes an attraction, not an action and using it interchangeably with abuse fuels misconceptions. When most of the public thinks of pedophilia, they assume it's synonymous with child sexual abuse. A pedophile is an adult who is sexually attracted to children, but not all pedophiles abuse kids. Same thoughts, same idea, same principle. As long as it remains in my head, it's not a sin. I can cultivate these affections in my heart, it's not a sin, as long as I don't act upon it. Brothers and sisters, Christ's authority declares something different than that. And we are bound to submit ourselves to his authority. He says, your heart's the first problem. Your heart is the first problem. Saints, our Lord is clear. We must recognize the deceptive nature of sin, and sexual sin in particular is deceptive. It begins not in our bodies, 
but in our hearts and our minds, which are polluted from the inside out. I'll go briefly through the last last point, the hope promised to those who seek righteousness. We've seen the authority of Christ, we've seen the deceptive nature of sin, but, but he doesn't leave us helpless and hopeless here. Let's look at the promise to those who seek righteousness. There is hope those for those who, who are in Christ. Look at verse 29 again. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members, and again, parenthetically, and go to heaven, than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members and be with Christ in eternity than that your whole body go into hell. Jesus gives an affirmative duty to us to wage war against the sin that remains. And with it comes a promise of deliverance. There is a real threat of hell to those who will not repent, those who will not recognize the authority of Christ, who will not bow their knee in every respect to Christ. It's repeated twice here by the Lord, this real threat of hell. But there's always a way of escape. He commands that, that when we, we, if we deal with sin and the temptations to sin radically, urgently and completely, and again, he uses this hyperbole, this exaggerated speech, to drive his point home. But we saw in 1 Corinthians 6, just a few moments ago, the, it begins with the command to flee sexual immorality. Dear friends, Jesus commands us that we, that we labor, we, we, we struggle. We must continue to press on, first of all, to recognize where the problem's beginning in our mind and flee from it. All the duties must be pressed are not only negative, do not commit adultery, do not look with lustful intent, but also the affirmative commands that we, we looked at earlier. Not only are we to avoid sin, but we're also to do certain things to promote our own chastity, to promote the chastity of our neighbors. Our righteousness in Christ is expressed not only in what we avoid doing, but also what we joyfully seek to do instead, fulfilling our mutual duties to one another as brothers and sisters, and particularly in our marriages. Honoring the marriage bed, the writer of Hebrews says, let the marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Do we recognize our community duties? Because again, marriage is not only a private matter. This means seeking eagerly to fulfill our obligations to our spouses, sexually in all aspects of our relationship, but it also means praying for one another, praying for the marriages around you. Fleeing from that which Christ forbids, but also joyfully laboring to obey all, that, all those duties which Christ commands and exhorting one another in those areas. This means praying for one another. It means encouraging one another in the obedience to Christ. It means praying for one another in the cultivation of affection within their own marriages. It means praying for those among us who are single and who will want to be married, praying that God would provide for them. So the authority of Jesus is not only regulates our conduct, but it gives us hope that we have a strength that's available to us beyond ourselves. So as we think about the, the, the law that's now on the books in Canada and, and a banning of so-called conversion therapies, and I want to be clear about something. So-called conversion therapies actually are unbiblical. Conversion therapy is unbiblical. We have zero scriptural warrant to attempt to persuade a homosexual man to become a heterosexual man. We have no scriptural authority to try to convince a lesbian woman to retrain her affections to men instead. We, we have, it's not our place of the church or any of the Christians to prevail upon someone beguiled by this, this deceptive thought of transgenderism and try to embrace a ordinary or cisgendered outlook on the world. Does that surprise you? That's not our duty. We have no command in the scriptures to convert someone from homosexuality to heterosexuality. Our command is to seek a sinner's conversion to Christ. That's our duty. Christ is the one who will cleanse. 
Christ is the one who will restore. Christ is the one who will rebuild. And we don't want to put the false premise that if you come to Christ, all your sinful desires just go away. Has that happened to you? If you've struggled with anger before you came to Christ, did you suddenly, I'm just, I'm just at peace with the world. I don't ever get angry anymore. People could cut me off in traffic all day long. I don't care a bit. Has that happened to you? If you, if you struggled with, with physical addictions of some kind, if you struggled with, with, the, with, with sexual lust, whatever it is, did it just magically go away because you came to Christ? If it did, praise God. That does happen, but that's not the ordinary experience. And for some who will say, I, I don't remember a time when I wasn't attracted to the same sex. For us to say, oh, well, Christ will give you this. You don't have the authority to promise that. I don't have the authority to promise that. What do we have the authority to promise? Christ will forgive your sins, and he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness, and he will preserve you until the very end, at which time he will give you a glorified body that will never be beguiled by, by sexual urges that are contrary to his word. He will never put you in a place in eternity where you're even tempted to sin. Our command is to seek a sinner's conversion to Christ, not heterosexuality. That's a key distinction. It's one that we have to make. We want to flood heaven with prayers to transfer the one who walks in the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's own son. See, sexual perversion, remember, it's a symptom. It's not the disease. We have to be willing to give them the remedy to the disease. It's a worship problem. It's an authority problem not a sexual problem. Do we, do we understand those things from the scriptures? The disease is rebellion against the exclusive authority to Christ to create, define, and enable our sexuality and every other area of our life. And if, so First John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to cleanse us of our sins, to forgive us of our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the promise that we can offer to anyone who struggles with any kind of sexual immorality. Our Lord's condemnation of adultery, of of lust, and unlawful divorce is paired with a hope of deliverance that's rooted in His righteousness, but also dependent upon His exclusive authority. So here's Christ's authority in the midst of sexual chaos. Sexual anarchy. What's the the answer? Here's the one who can bring order. Here's the one who says, you've heard that it was said. But I say to you, not something that's burdensome, but something that is glorious and freeing. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come. Come. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, we take note not only of the authority of Christ in this area and every area, but the deceptive depth of sexual sin. Let's not provoke God by, by, by the pride of our own hearts. And, and we, we concentrate on the madness out there and we refuse to deal with the sin that remains in here. Christ's authority in this area applies equally to the Christian as it does to the world. But also, let's not lose sight of the hope, the glorious hope that is promised. And let's not redefine that hope in in terms that Christ has not given to us. He's not authorized us to promise a lesbian that you 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 will love men and want to be married and raise children. He hasn't promised that. We shouldn't promise that. But we can promise your sins will be forgiven. You will be whiter than snow, and Christ will be your husband. We can promise that. Is there any honest soul here right now who feels righteous in this area? I'm not asking for a show of hands. I'm I'm asking that in a rhetorical sense. Hopefully the answer is no, we don't. We we recognize the the stain of the world upon us, the the defilement that comes out of our own hearts. I mean, is is any man's heart truly pure? Is any man here ready to say, my heart's truly pure? 
Is, is any woman ready to say, I'm, I'm fully chaste? I'm thankful for the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God unto salvation. For the Jew first and also for the Gentile. He is the one who cleanses us. He is our righteousness. Not only to cleanse our sin, but to have the full, perfect, infinite righteousness of Christ imputed to us. Your works and your good deeds will never save you. It is all of God's free and sovereign grace. The other night I was getting ready for bed and I could hear our idiot dog barking. Not an uncommon thing. But I couldn't find him. I went out with a headlamp. Well, this fool, we have a, an invisible fence. So he's got the shot collar and he'd gotten over the line. And the way the fence works, if he gets close to the boundary, it beeps. It warns him. And he clearly ignored the warning and he'd gone across. I don't know why, but he, goes, he went off into the woods and he got stuck. And I had to go all to the back of the yard. I got the headlamp on and and I called him, and, and he does this like army crawl across the line. But he continues the army crawl way past the line, and he gets almost to me, and he stops, and he picks up a stick, and the army crawls further, and he drops it at my feet and looks at me like, and I know he doesn't think this, he's an idiot, but he thinks, he's like, I'm sorry, will you accept this stick? <laughs> this, is, this is the restitution that I'm offering to you. You know, I laughed at that dog, but then I got in bed, and I thought, that's me. Isn't that what we do to the Lord? I'll bring you to you the stick of my promise that I won't do that again. I'll bring you the stick that says, I, I, I'm contributing something here, right? Rather than saying, this is all of God's grace. And I scratched the fool behind his ear and sent him on to the doghouse, and you're a good boy. <laughs> He's not, but neither am I. Did you ever do that with God? Here's the, here's the stick of my bargaining. I'm going to bring you something. I feel like I've got to bring something. I'll put a lecture in the offering plate, or I'll make sure I'm, I'm, I'm there early for Sunday, and I'm, I'm going to double down and try harder. And That's not the grace of the gospel. The grace of the gospel says, I've got, all I have is the empty hand of faith to receive what Christ alone can give. Saints, he's with us. He hates your sin more than you do. But he also loves you far greater than you can imagine. He never hates his children. He hates your sin. He desires to see you free from your sin. He, he has accomplished everything necessary for that to happen. And he's personally guaranteed that one day it is going to happen. Without a doubt, without fail, if you're in Christ, one day you will be utterly, thoroughly, fully, fully, finally completely, eternally set free from what nags you and constrains you and clings to you now. He is the tender and merciful Savior of sinners. Will you come to Him now? Will you turn away from your sin and believe in Him? As we come to the table, we studied this morning in, in Sunday school what, what uh, the significance of the Lord's table as we come and as we, as we eat the bread and we drink the wine, not just in, not as a mere memory device, but there's an active participation in all the benefits of Christ as we eat and drink, not his physical body and physical blood, but spiritually he's present with us in his spirit. And he invites sinners to eat with him. He invites betrayers to eat with him. Well, let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you in the name of your Son for your mercy to us. Lord, please forgive us when we lose sight of your authority. As we wring our hands and as we, we are even discouraged at, at the state of our culture. And, and Lord, forgive us when we oversimplify things and, and not look to the root issue that your authority is being challenged and that we are guilty of that as well. Help us by our words and by our conduct to represent you well. To live before you in, in, in humble obedience in such a way that even our sinful neighbors, our Gentile pagan neighbors who are struggling in these very areas may ask us, 
the hope, the reason for the hope that's in us, as they see our imperfect but homes that we've sought to, to order according to your word, would you would you make it so that our neighbors take notice of that and that you give us occasion to hear and receive their questions and, and be willing to entertain difficult questions, messy questions, questions that we don't want to talk about. But would you prepare us for that? Would you make us eager for the sake of an eternal soul to have those conversations? Will you purify and cleanse us so that we will be clean vessels by by Christ's work, by Christ's righteousness, for His glory alone? Amen.